Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in and welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast. Today, we are looking again at a real person of the faith. This is, I think, an interesting character, one that we all may know something about generally, but I suspect one that few people have really dug into with much depth. Today, we are in the book of Esther, and Esther is kind of an outlier, Michael. It's a fascinating story. She is one of the few women, like Ruth, who gets a book devoted entirely to her story. And yet outside of this book, her story really doesn't have many inroads into the, the broader narrative of the scripture. Yeah, in some ways, Esther's a natural pairing with the book of Jonah, uh, because there are some themes like that that are shared. It kind of stands out on its own a little bit. In fact, the story is deeply intertwined in not particularly Israel's story, but rather she's a queen of a foreign nation. So, there's some themes of being exiled in this book. There's some uh, requirements that that brings with uh, Esther to display courage and strength and fortitude of faith. And um, yeah, this is a really really helpful book, I think, Clint, as it really shows us the importance of this one woman, not just to her family and not just to the faith, but really for an entire nation. Yeah, and let's do a, a little bit of background, Michael, just in case people don't understand what this book is and how it got here, where it's from, the timeline, that kind of stuff. So, Israel, you might remember, had been together for a brief time and then sp split into two nations, Israel and Judah. Israel, the larger nation to the north, Judah, the small nation to the south. At the point in which Israel is under pressure, the Assyrians are the world power, and they come in, and in about 722, they conquer Israel, but they leave Judah. Judah was able to navigate that through some political maneuvering, and so Judah stays. However, as the Assyrian power wanes, the Babylonians come onto the scene, and Judah doesn't handle this as well. And in about 586, 587, something like that, the Babylonians move into that era, and they have essentially conquered now all the ground that the Assyrians once had, and they don't spare is they don't spare Judah. Excuse me. They take Jerusalem. They they destroy Jerusalem. And they cart people off. They, their practice was that they exiled people. They didn't leave people who they thought might cause trouble for them in their own towns. So they essentially take them back to Babylon and resettle them. Now, a little bit of time has gone on since then. Not a great deal of time. But the next world power wave comes in the form of the Persians. And the Persians are largely symbolized by their leader, a man named Xerxes, who you might be surprised to hear has a rather positive review in the scripture. And the reason for this is that Xerxes commanding the Persians wipes out the Babylonians and undoes the policy of exile, in many cases allowing people to return home if they wanted. So two things make Xerxes a somewhat favorable character in the Old Testament. One, he lets them return to their homeland. And two, he conquers the people who conquered them. And so this book, Esther, is set in the time of King Xerxes. In fact, King Xerxes is one of the major characters. He's called by his Hebrew name in this book, which means mighty one which is a name that he had given himself, and there's very little doubt that we're referring to Xerxes here. And this story, Michael, is from that timeline, which is significant because it seems to have been written, if not by a people, certainly for a people in exile. The themes of being an underdog. We have Esther the orphan. We have Mordecai the unknown one. We have the Jews who are scattered throughout and have lost their, their sense of being a nation, and yet they prevail in the end and they remain strong. A lot of underdog themes in this book. 
And also we have in this book a, a real kind of, um, for the first instance, a, a real word to the Jews who live under a different world power and an encouragement for them to remember who they are. And sorry to do a long introduction here, but this book is really styled in some ways, unlike so much of the rest of the Old Testament, this is almost styled like a novel. Mm -hmm. It's it's written in story form, really. Yeah, in fact, Clint, I once uh, heard a scholar talking about Esther saying that it's one of the most advanced form of literature of its time, uh, its ability to do some of this work with characters and to introduce us to people and interject scenes, that it's it's quite sophisticated in terms of what literature was at the time. But I, I don't want to keep complicating an already long introduction, and I suppose we could debate about the right time to introduce this, Clint, but uh, fundamentally, I said that there's themes of faith in this book, and I think that's true because the people of Israel have always been defined by their faith by that idea of one God and, and that God's promise to them. But what's interesting about Esther is that God isn't named in this book explicitly. The, the idea of um, us including Esther in the Real People of Faith series is fascinating in the sense that this book doesn't spend a whole lot of time plumbing the depths of her faith or, or faith of the people that surround them. This book has more of a a sense in which that faith is connected to their ethnic identity and to how they behave in the world. Yeah, interestingly enough, Esther, just in case you're ever playing Bible trivia, the only book in the Scripture that doesn't mention God at all, and in fact had a hard time getting included into the Old Testament, both for Jews and Christians, because of that fact. But remember the setting. People who are living in a foreign land, under a foreign power, who, by the way, claims to be a god. Xerxes considers himself divine. And they're trying to make their way in a world without their temple, without their priests, without their homeland. And the question that hangs over their experience is, where is God? What is God doing? And so this story is the story of people specifically Mordecai and, and Esther, who fashion their own future, who work out their faith without faith language, but in, in very practical ways that benefit the Jewish people. And in, in its own way, Esther is an incredibly nationalistic right. text. It, it's very, um, it has a strong allegiance to the Jews. And Maybe, Michael, in a real way, the first thing that we would see in the Old Testament that we could call anti-Semitic. I mean, the, the Jews have had enemies, but here we see, in the context of this book, a program engineered to exterminate them and, and to eradicate them. Yeah, absolutely. The text makes that clear as we go farther um, down into it. It's... It really starts, Clint, with this casting of what happens with the previous queen. Xerxes has a queen um, and uh, throws this really big party, wants uh, everybody uh, to be uh, impacted by it. He's showing off the might of the kingdom, the riches of the kingdom, and of course, by extension, his own power. And as part of that, he wants to show off his wife, which I think introduces immediately a very a strange contrast uh, to a modern audience, to us. And that is that this book is all about a woman, and that is, uh, you know, very uh, feminist, something that we can really appreciate. <laughs> but throughout this entire book, uh, women are presented as objects. And that's maybe nuanced here, but he wants to show off his, his wife, and she refuses uh, uh, her name is uh, Queen Vashti. She refuses uh, to go out uh, and to um, essentially come at the king's command, and that causes Xerxes to uh, then essentially go to his nobles and say, my w wife won't do what I say, what should I do? Yeah, and not to do a lot of history, but historically this is in keeping with what people think they know of Xerxes. He was, and his kingdom was, prone to excess in 
in collecting things, in its military, in the parties and celebrations that he had. He, the, he was known for um, kind of wild living and full-on, um, let's say, exuberance in life. And the, and the second thing is that his word was law. He, he was enraged by any kind of defiance or any question that was asked of him or at him. And so he, he, was, uh, he was prickly, and we see it here. He's had a party. He calls his wife. She doesn't come. He says, it says here in the text, the king was enraged and his anger burned within him. And you bring up the, the point, Michael, lots of themes woven through this story. We begin with a kind of gender theme. There is a lot of interplay here between men and women and gender roles. In fact, um, fascinatingly, there's this group called eunuchs that are males that have been castrated so that they could be in the presence of royal females. And they are really the characters that go between the men and the women, particularly in the royal court, less so for the Jews. They, they don't really have that um, approach to things. But in the Persian world, it's the eunuch that goes back and forth. And so Esther will end up studying, uh, essentially, with a eunuch. There's also there's gender here, there's race, there's racism, and then there's some kind of political intrigue with the spying and planning that goes on. And we meet some of these characters before we meet Esther. Uh, Xerxes is, is angry, and he asks of his nobles, what should we do? And th this is... Uh, almost humorous. In fact, I think maybe it's supposed to be humorous. They tell him, look, if, if you let the queen get away with this, none of the wives are going to obey their husband. If, if they think the queen doesn't have to listen to the king, then what chance do the rest of us have of getting our wives to you know, do what we tell them? And so they come up with this policy that uh, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike, if you just uh, essentially kind of um, kick King Queen Vashti out and give her the boot. So give her a royal position to someone who is better than she is. And then all the women, it says, will honor their own husbands, high and low alike. So the women have to work within some kind of tricky circumstances. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I love the the male response there that says that if the king kicks her out, that's somehow going to cause everyone else to suddenly be on the obeying side. That sounds like a thing that men would think of. But yeah, yeah, put all the women on notice. <laughs> but uh, realistically, it's that theme, Clint, that carries for, forward in the story because fundamentally, there's this conflict that happens there. The king uh, orders the queen to come and, and that's uh, the, the situation that causes this long-term conflict and Esther being chosen. It's ironic then, and I think we should perk up our ears, when it's in the reverse, Esther going to the king when she's not supposed to, uh, that causes trouble later in the story. So, it, these details matter, Clint, that we find in the beginning of this story. Yeah, so we move into chapter two. The queen has been deposed, and Xerxes is looking for a new queen. And he says, let all the beautiful young virgins be sought out, and I want them collected. They go under the care of uh, a eunuch, and essentially, for a period of, I think it says a year, they are trained, they are schooled in, in etiquette and in how to please the king, um, probably in various ways. And Esther, this uh, orphaned, originally orphaned Jewish girl who is adopted by her uncle Mordecai, um, finds herself in that initial harem. And when her turn comes, essentially the, the king has said, okay, everybody has one night at a time. And, and it says here they would go and meet the king, and they would spend essentially the evening with him, and then 
the next one would come in. And he is impressed. In fact, it says it here in verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Of all the virgins, she won his favor and devotion so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her a queen instead of Vashti. And Michael, uh, different ways to read this part of the story. Some read it very racy. Some read it um, with a lot of sexual overtones and the idea that when it says Esther, you know, impress the Pharaoh, that that is very physical in nature. I, I think the text is a little more modest than that. That it may leave that to our um, may leave that to our imagination. But clearly, here, whatever she does, she wins essentially this contest, and she goes from being an orphan Jewish girl growing up with her uncle to the queen of Persia. Now, is that realistic? That's the story we have. Yeah, and we need to make sure it's pointed out here that she intentionally uh, hid her nationality. The text tells us this, that she didn't tell Xerxes that she was a Jew. And uh, that was direct uh, instructions from Mordecai. And that is going to become important later on in the story. And I think another thing worth noting here, Clint, is that the text really um, doesn't have feeling words. In other words, it, it doesn't express what anyone felt in this situation. You certainly have Xerxes who's in a position of power and Esther who's not. And even becoming queen is not as if she jumped above uh, the male influence of that society. But we do get this image of Esther as a wise woman. Uh, uh, certainly a woman who was able to um, be quiet about her nationality, even in what may have been tricky circumstances. So, I, I, it, I, I just mean to say, I think the text paints a very positive picture of this y- young woman navigating the systems and structures that were set against women in her time. Yeah, agreed. And so, from this part of the story, we really kind of shift, and the rest of the story is kind of behind-the-scenes political maneuvering. And the transition happens very quickly. We've had a chapter of why Xerxes was looking for a queen. We've had a chapter of how that became Esther. And now, really, the rest of the story is this drama behind the scenes of Esther as queen. And so it it continues to include Mordecai. Mordecai gets wind somehow that there are two men who are plotting to assassinate Xerxes. He tells Esther, Esther tells Xerxes, the men are executed and her stock goes up. But alongside that, there is this man who now is introduced in the story who really is the driving force of the story from here out. His name is Haman. And Haman Um, is offended by Mordecai. And through Mordecai, he's offended by all the Jews. Mordecai doesn't bow down to him. And this could be seen as something particularly Jewish. The, The Jews, being monotheists, would not recognize others as deity, though it's unlikely that Haman would qualify as a god within the Persian pantheon. But regardless, Haman is so offended by it, he says, I, I want Mordecai put to death, and what's more, I want all the Jews. And it says he, he plotted to destroy all the Jews. And Michael, I think really in regard to the, the storyline, this is where things get moving. Yeah, right. It's clear and it's made explicit that Haman so hates Mordecai that he doesn't want to just take out Uh, Mordecai the individual. He wants to take out Mordecai's people. And this is where we really begin to see the thrust of how racially motivated this is, that it is about a systemic identification and then extermination of the people. And um, it is then sort of the contrasting reality that while Haman's going to plot this uh, this thing, essentially in revenge to his broken pride. Um, you have Esther, who's sort of the sleeper Jew 
literally in the palace. And that these things are going to, of course, they're, they're on um, a, a collision track and they're going to uh, come into each other. And so Mordecai finds out about this edict when it is distributed throughout the land that um, essentially, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead here. Haman convinces Xerxes to sign this deal, this this um, edict that will make it legal to attack and kill Jews and Jewish communities. Mordecai finds out about this and he goes to Esther and says, Esther, you need to use your position of influence to help uh, because our people are going to be destroyed. Yeah, and that's a fascinating conversation. We're in the back part of chapter four and it says here, uh, for if you keep silence as such a time, at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. And this, for a female character in the scripture, Michael, is a fascinating place for her to be found. She is an orphan. Her parents were killed in the deportation from Babylon. She's been raised by her uncle. She's been raised to queen. She has a pampered life. She has an incredible life. Xerxes, at least in the story, has genuine affection for her. She has everything a person could dream of, and yet now her uncle lays upon her this burden of acting on behalf of her people, who probably didn't feel much like her people. And about as close as we get to theology in this letter, in this this book, is this verse here, help will rise from somewhere else. That's very close to a statement of faith. But then almost echoing what we saw in Joseph, perhaps you've come to this moment for such a time as this. Perhaps your rise to royalty sets the stage for helping your people. In Joseph's case, famine. In this case, avoiding extermination. Yeah, you should never conflate Esther with Spider-Man, but there's a famous saying from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And fundamentally, uh, there is sort of a theology of providence in this, Clint, or there's a way that we as Christians could understand this as pointing us towards God's ability to work, to rule, and even overrule in human circumstances. Here, um, Mordecai is suggesting, Esther, maybe these good things that have happened to you are intended to enable you to do something good in the world. And and fundamentally, that is theology. It's also deeply rooted in responsibility and in practice. I mean, fundamentally, uh, Esther, you need to do something. You need to put at risk this position that you have because if you don't, um, you know, there's no telling uh, exactly how this is going to play out. So, I think it, it is interesting and let's not lose the fact, Clint, that this is not the most direct way that you anticipate God working, right? In other stories, God enables the people of Israel to fight militarily and they win battles they should have never won, or God gives them a leader that that leads them into battle and they win. Uh, In this story, God enables this young woman who is queen of a foreign nation state to be able to work within the systems of that state to bring essentially, um, justice to the people. So, it's a remarkable way of seeing how God is able to work in ways far beyond our normal human imagination. Yeah, and that's a moment of decision for Esther. Because there's no burning bush in this story, there's no message in the clouds, she has a decision to make. And it should not be missed that there is real risk in it for her. So, Esther said to Mordecai, gather the Jews to be found in Susa, in in the community they live, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day, 
and I and my maids will also fast. And after that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So the reference here is that to enter unbidden into the presence of Xerxes was to risk death. And the, the way this story is told, Xerxes has a golden scepter, and if you intrude upon his presence, he could pardon you by pointing the golden scepter over you, and that meant he accepted you into his, into his presence, into his circle. However, if he withheld that, you were put to death. You had, um, you had trespassed against his holiness, and you could be put to death. So in approaching even her husband, she takes a significant risk. And it's very interesting, Michael, that she, she prepares for that risk communally, asking all of the Jews to fast on her behalf. Right. And again, God is not mentioned, but clearly in the backdrop, we see what, what's going on there and what that means. Yeah, there's a reality that uh, that is a Jewish practice of fasting, and to reflect the fact that she's asking the community community to fast with her is also a reflection of the purpose for why she is going to risk her life. It's for those same people. And I do think it's interesting, Clint, though, this this connection to the court, right? Ironically, you have the court participating, her court, participating in this practice that the rest of the Jews are. You, you see how there's this small little base camp of God's people that have been uh, put into this foreign palace. And it's amazing to see how her courage then becomes offset with Haman's really uh, shallow pride be because uh, Haman um, gets invited to, oh, well, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead again here. So Esther does go to the throne room, right? And it, it turns out well for her. Uh, she's granted the scepter, she lives. In fact, the king says, what do you want? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. She says, well, I, I just want you to come to a banquet I prepared, and I want you to come with Haman. So Haman is excited about this uh, uh, after the king accepts, and um, he and the king go to this banquet, Haman thinking that he's top of the world, that he gets to go uh, with the most important person in the land, and he's the only guy who gets invited to go. And it's fascinating because Haman sees in this a political path forward to more power, to more prestige, to in fact um, getting this whole plan to get the Jews completely solidified and done. And um, fundamentally, Esther is working out of humility and courage to resist it. And they're all colliding in, in these critical scenes. Yeah, and just two things in the backdrop here. One, there is a date set for the extermination of the Jews. That, that has been signed off on by the king somewhat unwittingly, though it shows that in royal power, there's a certain flippancy, a certain nonchalance to life and death. But that date is coming. So there is a timeline on that. And then the other thing happens at the end of chapter four, Michael, and it's very, very subtle. Mordecai tells Esther what he thinks she should do. And she agrees. And now she tells him. And for the rest of the story, she is really the one driving the leadership of this effort to save the people. That that has transferred without really any fanfare from Mordecai's hands into Esther's hands. She accepts that reality. She goes forward. They have the banquet. It goes well. The king says again, what would you like me to do? She says, I'd just like to have this kind of banquet again. Now, in the meantime, in almost comic relief here, the Bible doesn't do hilarious very well, <laughs> but, but there is some humor in this. Haman's on his way home. He's had a great day. Yep. He's been drinking with the, with the king at the special invitation of the queen. He thinks, my stock has never been higher <laughs> And he walks by. In fact, verse 9 here of chapter 5, Haman went out that day happy and in good spirits. Then he saw Mordecai and he observed that Mordecai neither trembled before him or bowed. 
and he was infuriated. So then he goes home, and he's complaining to his wife, and his wife said, you should build a gallows. You've got to get rid of Mordecai. So uh, it does me all good. I see. And then his wife said, get a gallows 50 cubits high, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. So now Mordecai has a timeline on his life. He's got overnight before Haman thinks he can engineer a death sentence, again, using the king to get his way. And then it says he was pleased again and had the gallows or the spike made. So next day comes, and the king has been um, thinking overnight, Michael. He's, He's had some insomnia, and I suppose... As kings do, he's thinking over the business of all the realm and what's been done. And he remembers that assassination attempt that happened in the not-too-distant past. And he thinks to himself, did we ever reward the guy who helped us find it out? Did, Did we ever, what did we do for that guy? So he calls one of his servants, and they say, well, that guy was Mordecai, and the king now thinks, well, we should take care of him. Yeah. Haman comes back to dinner, and the king says, hey, Haman, what do you think we should do for a person who did great things in the kingdom? And, and Haman thinks he's talking about him. In fact, uh, we're, in verse, oh, we're in verse 6 here of chapter 6. Haman said to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? And so he gives the king this elaborate, you, you should take a robe that you've worn, and you should get a horse that you've ridden, and you should put this guy through town, let everybody see him, let everybody make their praise to him. And the whole time he's thinking, that's going to be awesome. That's, that's me. And then the king drops the bomb. Right. The king says that the man who we're going to honor isn't you, but it's the guy who you came to try to convince me to kill today. And yeah, it's just, it's irony upon irony, Clint. Yeah, and then he goes back home. He's complaining about that. And this time his wife says to him, if Mordecai, before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but will surely befall, will surely fall before him. And so uh, here again, we saw some of this language in Exodus, this inkling of the idea that the Jewish people are still strong and resilient and possibly divinely protected. And here even Haman's wife says, look, if you're messing with the Jewish people, this isn't going to end well for you. So second half of the banquet, the... The king invites Haman again at Esther's request. They're together, and Esther has now engineered. She gives her true request to the king. The king says again, Esther, what what do you want? And she says, well, we have been sold, and me and my people are to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. If we've been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would hold my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. And the king is angry, and he says, who would do this? And she says, Haman. And the king leaves the room for a moment, and Haman, in the process of begging Esther for his life, has joined her on the couch and the king comes back in, and he sees, again, some, some vestiges of the Joseph story. He sees what he thinks is Haman um, trying to get friendly with Esther. And at this point, Michael, Haman's, Haman's fate is pretty much sealed. Yeah, he's angry. He uh, condemns Haman to death, but not just death, death upon the very instrument of death that Haman had constructed for Mordecai. And uh, here we see sort of the closing of the Haman story, but 
it continues on, Clint, in the ripples that Haman started. There's still an active order and edict out there that the king had signed saying uh, that it was authorized to kill the Jews. And so now the next and last part of the story revolves around the king's attempt to undo that. Yeah, so again, pioneered by Esther with some help from Mordecai, the Jews not only are saved from that that command that is hanging out for their um, annihilation, but they are allowed to defend themselves. And the, the idea here is that they're given some sort of special leeway or, or dispensation for protecting themselves and standing up to those who would harm them. And initially, it's fairly tame. They defend themselves. They kill about 5,000 people. At one point, I think it says as many as 75,000 people are killed as as they stand up for themselves. And this part of the story, um, it's helpful, I think, that we went through some of the other characters of the Old Testament first. This part of the story has some echoes of the Joshua narratives. They vanquished their enemies, but it says they took none of the spoils. Like the stuff is is corrupt, so they didn't take it. And we saw that often in the Joshua stories. Go in and destroy the people, but don't take any of the don't take any of the plunder. And so we see that a couple of times here. And and really that's it's kind of where the story ends, Michael. They they institute this festival called the Purim Festival, and it remains celebrated. That becomes a significant holiday in, uh, in the Jewish tradition, I believe, still celebrated, still practiced. And it's really in remembrance of Esther and her work on behalf of the Jews, who are, again, saved, though in this time under the power, not directly of God, but of Xerxes, but I think you could comfortably say in this story, the power of God may be working even through Xerxes. Yeah, and it's interesting because you really, at the end of this story, end up with three people in power. Xerxes stays in power throughout the entire story. Esther, um, at the end of this story, is actually sending out official decrees with the authority of the king. She She's occupying a kind of legislative um uh, administrative responsibility that would not have been common in that traditional relationship. So she is really um, out front uh, using uh, her position and the authority that she has been given in new and, and interesting ways. And it's also worth noting that at the end of the story, story Mordecai is a trusted uh, companion. In fact, it says that he's you know second to King Xerxes, that he is held in high regard. Um, so you have this this interesting flip where it goes from uh, Haman, who has a grudge against Mordecai, uh, plotting to kill all the Jews, and then Mordecai in particular, and it ends up with Haman dead. Mordecai second in command, surely where Haman wanted to be, and um, all of the people of Israel saved because of uh, Esther's uh, courage. So, fundamentally, it's it's another amazing story in which the expectation is reversed, but where subtly God is alive and at work in it. Yeah, and and I would say that not only, Michael, tell me if you agree with this, not only are the people saved— but they begin to reestablish some of the characteristics of what we saw as the nation of Israel. They are fierce militarily. They defend themselves. They stand against their enemies. Now, they do so under King Xerxes, but there's a sense and, and in which, and maybe only in this text, where we get the sense that they are going back to who they used to be. You know, this is probably very close to the time that the material of the Old Testament stops being written. This is, this is arguably one of the later words or last words. And it's interesting that in some of the prophets, we see Israel struggling and never really recapturing something of who they've been. 
Esther seems to give us the hint that perhaps they're on their way back to prominence, back to strength. And though it's not said in this story, even perhaps back to faithfulness. Yeah, right. And maybe that's what makes this story, Clint, so powerful in this series that we're doing is that, uh, as you said very well, I think, Esther did not have a burning bush experience. Uh, She didn't have a kind of direct contact to God, Esther, you need to do this thing. I think all of us on some level, though we would struggle to empathize or to maybe imagine ourselves in the halls of a royal palace, uh, I do think we can somewhat empathize with a person who has in front of them a challenge that seems uh, unbelievably difficult. It, it To Esther, this must have felt complicated. It must have felt terrifying to go and to take action on behalf of the people. She certainly didn't know how it was going to pan out. And, and yet, her, her decision to do the, the thing that she could do was, as it turns out in this story, exactly what God uses to bring restoration to the people in ways just beyond surviving. I think, Clint, you say it well, to sort of reanimating the entire nation. And and so, it's important that we recognize that this is happening not just to someone who's working within the political system, but specifically a woman. And a lot has been written about Esther's relationship as a woman in the Old Testament, but it's worth saying here that that fundamentally we, we celebrate the fact that God has literally used uh, people of all different kinds in the uh, history of salvation. And this is an example of how each and every one of us, regardless of who's listening and joining this conversation, this is for you. Uh, you may not be in the halls of the palace. You may be more like Mordecai, quite frankly, who was sitting by the gate. Um, whatever uh, position you've been given, uh, we are called to be people to do the right thing that comes in front of us, and God can use that for good. Yeah, I think a story of very humble origins, you know, in some ways, it is the story of Israel from their very meager beginnings as slaves and the rise to world prominence. Here we have an orphan girl who becomes not only a queen, but a queen who takes risky and decisive leadership to salvage and secure the future of her people. It's a really interesting story. There's not, there's not a lot in the scripture like this, Michael. I think I would argue that in the Old Testament, this is a unique story. You know, there's not a lot of moralizing. There's not a lot of, did she do right? Did she do wrong? It It is the story of people living out their commitments in very practical and in some ways dangerous, but they have to do it, right? Mordecai has to do it. Esther has to do it. And, and in that sense, this book is every bit as courageous and this character every bit as courageous as David who marches out to fight Goliath or who as Joshua who surrounds Jericho. It, it's just that it takes place amidst very different scenery than the battlefield, or at least maybe one could say that the battlefield on which it takes place is very different scenery than some of those other books. Yeah, absolutely. And though God is not named as the one operating in this text, I think you've uh, pointed out really well, Clint, those different little moments where we might see through the veil and see that indeed uh, when, when Haman sets his face against the Jews, he's not just doing that against a people group. He's not just racist. He's actually trying to exterminate the people of God who God made a covenant to and who God has been faithful to. And so, as you see in this, you see a way in which in some of the nitty-gritty, like literally, is the king going to put the scepter down or not? Is the king going to respond positively in this meal? Um, Mordecai does the right thing in handing over these people who might have assassinated Xerxes. All of these things, which, you know, almost seems like you could read in a 21st century 
biography of someone who worked in the White House or something, right? I mean, fundamentally, it it feels like as you read it more politics than than faith but these people were were responding out of a deep-seated sense of responsibility i think not just to their people but to the god of their people and fundamentally god is faithful to them through this whole book yeah i think it would be i think you would clearly be missing the point if you tried to argue that this isn't a faith story because it doesn't mention God. And I think it's a service to all of us that it's in the canon, particularly as it comes late and as we would transition from books like this to the New Testament. Because one of the things I appreciate about Esther, Michael, is that God isn't there to intervene. And it, there isn't a burning bush. Mm-hmm. There isn't go do this. There isn't so God struck Haman dead. There are people trying to live out their faith, trying to encourage one another, trying to make a difference in their world, literally trying to save lives with, hey, fast for me before I take this risk. Hey, if you don't do this, it'll have to be done some other way. There is a reality to this, I think, for humans of faith, people of faith in our day and age who often live without God's more obvious presence as we try to do not only good things, but do the right things. Yeah, I think as we sort of wrap up Esther here, I think uh, I would encourage you, if you've not read this, read this whole book, in fact, you could read this in, oh, probably 45 minutes to an hour, you could get through this entire book, depending upon how quickly you read it. it you would not regret uh, seeing the entire scope of this story and seeing how the Holy Scriptures are really, um, they are emphasizing God's willingness and desire to use everyone to bring His kingdom about. And it is, it is notable not just for how well it's written and not just for the characters in it. It's notable that the scriptures choose to tell the story of a woman named Esther um, and to include that in the salvific history of God's people uh, because it it points us to the fact that that God intends for us to see uh, God's ability to work through a people who, quite frankly, would in other times in history have been left off the pages of history. So, this is a, it's a gift to the church. It's a, a, certainly a gift to us as we read it today. Yeah, and Michael, we have kind of approached some of these conversations with the two questions, what did the character get right and what did the character get wrong? I, I wonder if in this case, because clearly Esther doesn't get anything wrong here, and in fact, I think one could argue she gets everything right. So maybe in this particular case, it's more helpful to think about this story from the perspective, what do we see in it that is positive and what do we see in it that's negative? And from the negative perspective, we would have to acknowledge that in regard to gender, this represents, unfortunately, many things that are often still true. A a woman is valued for her ability to please a man of power. A woman has to find her way somewhat manipulatively into some opportunity to, to do action. She has to play the game. She doesn't really, you know, it is her physical beauty, it is her attractiveness, it is her sexuality that opens doors for her. And we'd have to say that you know, certainly in that we do not see a paradigm that we hope for our daughters and our wives and, and our granddaughters. Um, so we see that. We certainly see anti-Semitism. Um, we see racism. We continue to unpack the things that those mean in our world. Um, probably the negatives are easy to spot in this text. In regard to the positives, we see that not that, that this woman isn't just a trophy wife. That this is a woman with courage. This is a woman with some subtlety, some nuance, intelligence, faithfulness. Um, this is a woman not to be trifled with, and a woman willing 
to take literally the risk of her life in order to secure a future for her people. And, you know, not to, not to over romanticize this story, but it sounds like stories that we hear, for instance, against the backdrop of the Holocaust. It, it sounds like stories we've heard of other women who said, at the risk of my own life, I will work to help others find a future and have a path forward. And Esther is a tremendous character in her own right, not simply in her relationship to males and, and particularly males in power. I think, I think um, this is a great story in some ways for young women, maybe not always. In fact, there'd be some cautions you'd have to give them. But Esther's a strong character. Yeah, if you zoom out at the macro level, Esther's a story of character. She's a woman of character. And and you know that because in, in the moment of decision-making, she decides without hesitation to do the thing at greatest risk to, to herself for the sake of others. And fundamentally, that, that character is the thing that Naaman um, it doesn't... Um, doesn't actually, he's not even, uh, sorry, not Naaman, Haman, um, is fundamentally lax. He's not a man of character. And and Esther's character shines through this story, and I think that's an affirmation of what God wants of each of us, to be people of character and uh, to trust then that we'll, we'll respond appropriately when we find ourselves in a critical circumstance. Yeah, and we told you we would try to identify when we're speculating, and certainly I'm speculating here, but it's not a stretch to say that in the context of the book, if Esther doesn't do what she does, the Jews may be lost, that, that no divine intervention is mentioned. And so one could assume that had she not intervened, they would have been put to death, that Haman's plan may have worked. And so uh, the, without the intervention of these two characters, Mordecai and Esther, things could have been lost, and she secures a future instead. So, really fascinating stuff. Thanks for joining us for this conversation, everyone. Uh, we, I, I think we maybe went a little bit longer than we normally do, but I think Esther has a lot in it, and I think we learn a lot from Esther. Uh, we hope that you've been encouraged by the conversation, that there's something in it that speaks to you that you might even be able to share with someone else. If, if you would like to make other people aware of it, it's easy to share this on Facebook or to just pass along a link to our website where this happens every week. Of course, we premiere the Pastor Talk podcast at 9 o'clock Central Standard Time every Wednesday on our Facebook page, and we would love to have you join us for our next conversation a week from today. But uh, that being said, we're grateful that you've joined us, and we look forward to our next conversation uh, as we continue this conversation about the real people of faith. Thanks, everybody.